going to continue in our series. Uh, <laughs> there's this picture of Dr. Hill. I'm like, will he stop looking at me right now? <laughs> Jeez, take him off. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. We've been in this sermon series called Committed. We've been, we've started off by looking at uh, a couple of chapters or a few chapters in the book of Acts. And so this week we're going to continue in that series called Committed. By way of review, by way of review, the first week we said we are committed to the mission of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus Christ said to his disciples, he said, you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we said that has been passed down to us. We are committed, committed to the mission. And then the next week, we said, not only are we committed to the mission, the only way we can accomplish that mission is by being committed to doing God's mission by God's spirit. God didn't leave us to come up with clever means and methods to accomplish his mission. He gave us himself through his Holy Spirit. We looked at Acts chapter 2, and we said we are committed to being a spirit-filled new covenant community and living by the Spirit, and operating by the Spirit. And then later we said, we have been entrusted with a message, and that message is the gospel message. And so we are committed to the gospel. We're not committed to self-help messages. We're not committed to, to TED Talks. We are committed to the gospel message. Because it is only the gospel that is the power of God that leads to salvation. Only the, only the gospel proclaimed in the name of Jesus Christ, that's the only name by which men must be saved. And so we are committed to the gospel. Then we said not only are we committed to the gospel, but we're also committed to being a shepherd. Uh, no, we said the next week we are committed to something, uh, the apostles' doctrine. How about that? We looked at the last part of Acts chapter 2 where it says, and they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And we were committed to fellowship, and that's true biblical fellowship, not just potluck meal where we are committed to one another. Then on last week we said we are committed to being a shepherd-led community. We are committed to biblical leadership. And what we are called to as the church is to be led by men who are called elders. Elders are shepherds. And shepherds know the sheep, feed the sheep, lead the sheep, and protect the sheep. This week, as we continue in on this series called Committed, I want us to be a church that is committed to holiness. A church that is committed to holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the song of the angel. 
The word holy means to be devoted, to be set apart. God is holy. God is set apart in that he's in the class all by himself. God is set apart in that there is no one like him. He is perfect in all of his ways. He, he, he is morally uh, perfect. There is no fault, error, or transgression in God. He is holy, holy, holy. And because God is holy, the people of God are also called to be holy. In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44 and 45, the Lord says to Israel, his chosen people, be holy, for I am holy. The church is holy and that she has been set apart from the world to be devoted to God. A couple of weeks ago, we recited the Apostles' Creed. And in that creed, we professed to believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Beloved, we as the church are holy, and thus we must be holy in our conduct. We must live in a way that is distinct from the world, set apart from the world. We are called to holiness, so we must be committed to holiness. As we talk about this word commitment, to me in my life, it seems that commitment has always worked best when there was accountability. How do we hold one another accountable for being committed to holiness? There are several ways. One way is by living in community with others. And as we live in community with others, we speak the truth in love. Some of us uh, hold we we some of us are held accountable by personal accountability partners. Another way we can be held accountable is through local church membership, and these are all good and necessary. But friends, this morning I want us to take a look at one avenue of accountability that is often neglected in the church, and that is. Church discipline. So welcome to the bridge, all of our guests. <laughs> the neglect of this important practice has been to the detriment of the church. Church discipline has been given to the, to the church by the Lord for our sanctification and purification. The Lord Jesus Christ himself set out church discipline. This is no human invention, church. This is from our Lord, our master, and our king, Jesus Christ. Church discipline is necessary not only because it's how we strive for holiness and because Jesus commanded it, but it's also because church discipline is one of the marks of a true church. John Calvin said concerning church discipline that all who either wish that discipline were abolished or who impede the restoration of it, whether they do this of design or through thoughtlessness, certainly aim 
as the complete devastation of the church. Beloved, church discipline is serious business. It is necessary if we are to be committed to holiness. Look with me this morning at one of the major texts on church discipline in 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. 1 Corinthians chapter number 5 is where we will spend our time studying this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter number 5, beginning with verse number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse number 1. As is our custom, let us stand in honor and reverence to God's holy word. 1 Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 1 says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all mean the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of this world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunk, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those in the, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Look with me first of all at the problem in this church at Corinth. The problem at this church in the Corinth. There's two problems that are presented in our text. The first problem at Corinth is that there was actually someone in the church committing an act of sexual immorality in the church. Specifically, that sexual immoral act or actions was that a man has his father's wife. There was a man in the church that was having an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. And this was a problem for a couple of reasons. 
One, it was outlawed, outlawed in the Old Testament scripture. Leviticus chapter 18, verse number 8 says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. That this phrase, to uncover the nakedness, is a euphemism for having sexual intercourse. Incest was forbidden and remains forbidden for the people of God. Now, you may be wondering why I said that this man in Corinth is having an incestuous relationship with his stepmother rather than his mother. I'm convinced, and as are most scholars, that if this were his biological mother, Paul would have said that this man uh, has his mother rather than his father's wife. The reason being is that actually when we look back at Leviticus chapter 18, the verse before in verse number 7 says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother. So there were two separate laws, one for not having sexual intercourse with your mother and then a second one for not having sexual intercourse with your father's wife. It may have been that this man's uh, uh, mother had already passed, uh, had died, and so his father had been remarried. So, so maybe that's why we're told that this is this man's father's wife. Either way, the evidence suggests he, has, he is committing incest. This was a direct violation of the law of God. But not only was this a direct violation of the law of God, but Paul says this man is doing something that's even repudiated by pagans. Incest was shocking to the world. The Romans despised incest. They considered it to be disgusting, illegal, and the grossest of crimes. Yet that's exactly what is happening in the church. Before we move forward to the second problem in this text, I want us to look at the characteristics of this particular sin. We need to look at the features of this sin so that we will understand the types of sin that are in view here. So that we just don't become this censorious uh, type of church where everybody's under church discipline because of every little lapse or every lapse of sin. That's not what is in view here. It's a certain type of sin and behavior and posture that is in view. What is that? First of all, this sin was common knowledge. Paul says it is reported. This sin is widely known, widely spread. It was not some secret sin of the heart. It started in the heart, but that's what not was that. But we don't bring people before the congregation or put people under church discipline for secret sins. This, this is sin that is public. Widely known, widely spread, common knowledge. Not only was it a sin that was, that was common knowledge, but it was sin that was blatant. That word blatant means obvious, intentional, having no concern for what others think. 
This was no accidental sin. It was intentional. It's, must, it's com, sin that is common knowledge. It is sin that is blatant, but it's also sin that is flagrant. This is shockingly bad. But it's also sin that is persistent. Notice that he says a man has his father's wife. This is present tense. It's not a man had his father's wife. No, he has. It's present ongoing, continual, happening right now type of sin. So, so this is sin that is ongoing, not some sin where, where there's a momentary lapse. It's persistent sin. So it's sin that is common knowledge, sin that is blatant and flagrant, but sin that is also persistent. Since it's ongoing and persistent, then it's also sin that is unrepentant. This, the issue with this individual is there was no repentance. How do we know there was no repentance? Because he's still doing the same thing. Friends, repentance doesn't mean you're just sorry for your sin. You must turn from your sin as well. Thus, the sins that require your church discipline, according to 1 Corinthians 5, are sins that are public-facing, blatant, flagrant, ongoing unrepentant sin. So that's the problem, the first problem that we see in our text. This man is committing ongoing unrepentant sexual immorality and calls himself a Christian. But there's a second problem in this text. He says, you are arrogant. He says, should you not have mourned Their attitude and their posture towards this man's sin was that they had become cozy, comfortable, and casual in their attitude towards sin. They had developed a callous insensitivity to sin. They had a low view of sin and a low view of the holiness of God. Therefore, they didn't do what they should have done. Their attitude towards this man and his sin caused them to neglect what was best for the man and for the church. Those are the two problems that were presented in this text. With this problem, Paul says, now must come a punishment for this type of sin. Let's look together secondly at the punishment. Last line of verse 2 says, Paul says, remove him from your midst. Remove him from among you. This sinning brother is to no longer remain in the church. He can no longer be in fellowship with the church. He is to be expelled from the church. Now look, I want you to see with me as we move to verse 3, who's responsible for excommunicating this individual from the fellowship? Verse 3, for though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. The responsibility for carrying out church discipline is not the leadership of the church. The responsibility for carrying out church discipline is the congregation. The elders may lead out and should lead out because hopefully what the elders have done is tried to call this man back into repentance and fellowship with God and fellowship with the people of God. That's the work that the elders should have been done. It is the responsibility of shepherds to pursue stray sheep. So the elders should have already been doing all this work. But the responsibility for ultimately carrying out church discipline falls to the church, the congregation. So one of the reasons you need to listen this morning and be really concerned about this idea and responsibility of church discipline is it's your job. We said we were committed to the apostles' doctrine. This is the apostle Paul telling us what to do. And our apostle Paul gets this from his Lord, Jesus Christ. Church discipline falls under the jurisdiction of the church. This is clearly what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 18. He says, after going to a sinning brother or sister privately, First step, and then going to them with witnesses. If they still do not repent, turn. Third step is to tell it to the church. Church discipline is the responsibility of the church because it's under the authority of the church. The church has the authority to carry out church discipline. And it has the authority because the Lord Jesus Christ has given to the church the keys of the kingdom. Keys represent or speak to authority. We have the keys to carry out church discipline. Not only do we have the authority, but we have the responsibility, people of God. Now, he needs to be removed from the congregation. That's the first punishment. Secondly, Paul says we must deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What does it mean to deliver over to Satan? This means that he is to be delivered over into the sphere of Satan's control. Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. This world is his domain. Therefore, this man is to be thrown back into the world and no longer under the protection of the community of the kingdom. The purpose of this handing over is for the destruction of the flesh. By destruction of the flesh, he means getting rid of that part of him that is causing him to yield to temptation. It is destroying these sinful desires. That's what needs to be destroyed. The part of him that is contrary to the things of the spirit. He has been thrown out. He is no longer under the care, love, and protection of the community that's called the church. He's been handed over to Satan. Ultimately, hopefully, for his restoration. That's the punishment. 
I know you're struggling with this. We need to look at what's the purpose of this. Hopefully that will help us understand this a little more. First of all, third, the punishment is removal. Where am I? The purpose, excuse me, for these for this punishment is the deliverance or salvation of this sinning brother. The purpose is for the deliverance or the salvation of this sinning brother. At the end of verse 5, Paul says, deliver him over to Satan so that, purpose, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Listen to how weighty this is. Beloved, the eternal destiny of this man's soul is at stake. Heaven or hell is in question concerning this so-called brother. Now, some of you may be thinking, Pastor, you're losing me here because I know you believe in the eternal security of the believer. That's right. I'm a good Baptist. Once saved, always saved. This, This thing can't be lost. It is secure. We're in God's hands, and no man can snatch us out of his hands. There's your shout for this morning. We have security. It's built into the promise. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but has everlasting life. It's the eternal life is built into the promise. God is not an Indian giving God. He doesn't give us eternal life one day and then say, oh, you've been a bad boy, a bad little girl. I'm going to take it back today. No, God's love, nothing can separate us from the love of God. I, I, I am convinced of that. I believe that. So, but, 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 but pastor, you saying this man, this man, even the text says that this man claims to bear the name of brother, but yet you said his soul uh, is, 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 is in limbo. Why do you say that? I think Paul is telling us, showing us, that this man's behavior is not consistent with the life of a believer who is a new creation in Christ. And because his behavior is not consistent with being a new creation in Christ, the fruit of this man's life suggests that he may have never been a believer from the beginning. I'm trying my best. And if he continues in this sin, it will become all the more apparent that he's not a changed man and was thus never a true believer. I believe this man, the question of this man's soul salvation is in view here because of what Paul says in the very next chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. He uses this same list. He says, look at, look at this with uh, me together. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, first one listed in this list, What was this man guilty of? Sexual immorality. So the sin, the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's soul salvation language right there. This man is guilty of sexual immorality Paul says if he continues in this sin and does not repent, he will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is not works-based salvation, by the way. 
Paul is saying his works are giving evidence to where his faith lies. So because this man is the evidence of his, of the works give evidence that he really doesn't have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first purpose of discipline is for the salvation of the sinner, or it may be for the deliverance of the sinner. The second purpose of church discipline, according to our text, and that's the rest of it, is the purity of the church. And we don't talk about this enough when we talk about church discipline. When we talk about church discipline, and I'm somewhat guilty of this, I focus on the restoration of the, the, the sinning brother or sister. And, and that's what that should be the focus. That is the goal. Restoration. But there's one that's even more, if not more, important than that. And it is the purity of the Lord's church. Look with me at verses 6 through 8. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul here has in mind Exodus chapter number 12 concerning the feast of unleavened bread. Let's do a little work together. Leaven was a little portion a fermented dough from the previous week. Leaven was used as a rising agent for the new loaf of bread. The leaven would thoroughly ferment the new loaf so that so the whole this whole new lump was leavened. And so the Lord gave to his people this celebration called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a seven-day festival that commemorated their abrupt departure from Egypt. They left so fast from Egypt that they had no time to leaven their bread. Therefore, for seven days, there was this to be this continual festival where there would be no leaven in the house. They were only to eat unleavened bread. This idea of leaven comes into the New Testament and, and, and is used as a metaphor for that which is evil and infectious. That which is forbidden and sinful. That's the idea of leaven. So here in verse 7, Paul says, if you don't get this leaven out your house, it's going to contaminate the whole loaf. Let's make some jumps. Let's get out of this metaphor and say, see what he is saying here. He's saying the leaven is this sinning brother. The leaven is this sexually immoral man in the church. Cleanse the leaven, this man, out so that you can be a pure loaf. Friends, sin is dangerous. It will infect and contaminate the whole church. This type of sin will make the whole church an unholy loaf. Paul says, that's not who you are. You are a holy loaf. You know how I know you're a holy loaf? Because Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And because he has been sacrificed, you are now an unleavened body. You are in Christ. You are holy. 
So essentially, Paul's admonition to this church is be what you already are. In Christ, the church is made pure. But you cannot be what you already are if you allow sin to go unchecked in your midst. Apostle Paul goes on to tell the church how they ought to remain pure in verses 9 through 13. It says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, or if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. It goes from rough to real bad when we think about how we ought to treat this individual. Because now Paul uses this idea and these words, don't even associate with such a one. There's been a lot of discussion over the years concerning the meaning and extent of what Paul meant when he said have no association with someone who bears the name of brother. This morning, I want to help us make some progress on this. Some say that when Paul says have no association, don't even eat with such a one, that what he means by that is to uh, exclude them from the membership of the church and ban them from the Lord's Supper. That's one majority, or uh, one major view. Another major view says it's not only that, membership plus being banned from the Lord's table, but it's also no personal interactions as well. How do we start to make progress toward arriving at a decision? Well, I... I want to use some of the methods that I use with every other text that I study, which in the first one is context. But let's look together at the media context. Paul begins actually back in verse 9 saying that he previously wrote them a letter that we no longer have not to associate with sexually immoral people. And that's all he said. The people in Corinth were confused. They were like, how in the world are we not to associate with any sexually immoral people? And by the way, this word for sexually immoral, porneia in the Greek, where we get our word pornography from, is a, a, a comprehensive term for all sorts of sexual immorality. So it's not just incest, but it's all forms of sexual sin. And so this, these people in Christ are like, Paul, how are we actually supposed to do that? Do you know where we are? Paul says, I, I didn't mean don't associate with any sexual, the sexually immoral of this world. If, if, by, if I meant that, then uh, you'd actually have to leave the earth because <laughs> they're everywhere. So it's impossible not to have any association with the sexually immoral of this world. We got to go to the marketplace. Got to go to the public square. So Paul says, let me clarify. That's not what I meant. I don't have any contact with the sexual moral of the world. Before we move on, I think this clarification seems to help us understand where Paul's mind is when he says no association. If no association simply means bar them from the Lord's table and exclude them from the membership role, it seems unnecessary and unlikely that a clarification would be necessary. They were already 
not coming to the gathering, the people of the sexual more of the world. They were already barred and banned from the Lord's table. People in the world didn't make a habit of being members of the local church. They thought we were crazy. They didn't make a habit of partaking of the Lord's Supper. So no clarification would have been needed to tell them not to associate with them in that way. That was already the case. But if by not associate he means more than just remove them from the membership roster and ban them from the table, then a clarification would be needed because they already don't associate with them in those ways. So he's clarifying something about what he means by not associating. And the fact that he needs a clarification means that it must be something more than just membership in the Lord's table. That was already the case. But as we consider more of the context, I think the Apostle Paul is broadening the idea of no association with the words that he has, adds even at the end of verse 11. When he says, don't even eat with such a one. Remember, this individual, this sinning brother, he's already told them, be removed. He's removed from the fellowship. And such, he is banned from the Lord's Supper. However, Paul goes on to add this directive to not even eat with such a one. Friends, we must understand that eating together conveys a message to both participants and onlookers. Who eats with whom is a powerful way of defining a social group and differentiating from other groups. And especially in an honor-shame culture, there was no way a person would be found eating with someone who was experiencing the shame of the community. Thus, this instruction to not eat with a sinning brother has to include more than just eating at the table, at the Lord's table, where we have the Lord's Supper. It seems like Paul has in mind here also private meals. The other context clue we have to consider is at the end of the passage where Paul says, purge this evil from among you. This is Old Testament language. So to understand this passage where Paul has in mind an Old Testament passage, we got to go look at some of those Old Testament passages. So we're going to do our homework. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy chapter 19. Now, look at verse number 18. There, the law has been given out about false witnesses. Here's where we pick up. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. You see at the very end, again, the purity of the people of God is the focus. And for us to remain pure as the people of God, whom, of whom Christ is in our midst, the, the, we must purge the evil from our midst. I've got some better verses. Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy chapter 22. Look at beginning of verse number 22. This is actually dealing with sexual immorality in 
in the community. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lays with the woman uh, and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. In these three examples, what we see is that purging is serious and extensive. Oftentimes, under Old Testament law, it was the, the purging was as far as physical death. And that assured that there was no association with the evil person at all. Now, under the New Covenant here in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is not advocating for physical death. He wants this man restored. He says, give him over to Satan so that he may be saved. So he doesn't want physical death, but he does want uh, to to be put to death, his fleshly desires. But he wants most of all the covenant, the new covenant community of God, the church, to be holy and to be pure. And in order to do that, they must purge the evil from among them and not keep company with this man corporately or personally. When I am torn between two views, oftentimes I go and look at how others have interpreted texts like these. So I went and looked at some of our heroes of the Reformation couple, Luther and Edwards. Here's what Martin Luther said. Punishment of the church member should stop short of his ruin or death, for St. Paul limits the goal of the band to improvement that he may be put to shame because no one associates with him. Paul doesn't, the, Martin Luther doesn't specifically answer the question about whether we can have private meals uh, with this band member, but he does tell us something about the goal of the association, that he may be put to shame. What's the goal of the shame? It's a tool to bring the individual back to repentance. And so as we process, how do I handle a sinning brother? or sister, we have to consider what am I communicating to this individual about their status before God and the people of God. Jonathan Edwards was much more specific. In his sermon entitled The Means and Ends of Excommunication, he said those under excommunication are removed from brotherly society. God's people are not only to avoid society with visibly wicked men and sacred things, but as such as may be, avoid them and withdraw from them as to that common society which is proper toward Christians. And particularly, we are forbidden such a degree of society with them or appearance of associating ourselves with them as there is make, uh, in making them our guests at our tables or being guests in their tables as is manifest in the text where we are commanded to have no company with such, no not to eat. These are the great reformers' words on our text. What we see is that church discipline is serious business. The purity of the church is at stake. Church, an impure church invites God's 
wrath upon that church. We look at some of the things that the Lord Jesus said to the churches in Asia. He told them to repent or I'll take your lampstand from you. I'll shut that thing down. To another church, he says, of the sexually immoral in that church in, in Asia, he said, if you don't repent, I will be at war with you. Revelation 2, if you want to check it out. Friends, this is serious business. Souls, Revelation 2 and 3. Souls, the state of one's soul may be at stake, but the purity of this church, of any church, is at stake as well. For us to be a true church, one of the marks is that of church discipline. We believe in preaching the word. We believe in the administration of the ordinances or the sacraments, baptism and Lord's Supper. Those are two of the big ones. But the one that we don't give enough thought to, the one that has been neglected for so long in the church, is that of church discipline. This has been a heavy word, a hard word. But church, this is heaven's word for the church. I understand this type of discipline seems harsh and unloving. This, even Paul gives us a sense at how, how, how we ought to respond to this ish, type of issue. He says we ought to mourn. This should not be something that we enter in lightly or easily. Yeah, it, it does seem harsh and unloving. But it actually is loving. The Bible says that the Lord disciplines those he loves. Church, discipline is an act of love. To neglect discipline is an act of hate. And let me, let me help us here for a moment. Let me put a parenthetical comment in here real quick. There, there, there is something that, some rumors that are being started, or I'm hearing some stuff about a new form of parenting that says, well, I'm not going to really correct my children. I'm just going to let them figure out. Y'all, that is unchristian and unbiblical. Fathers, Ephesians 6 says, instruct your children in the admonition of the Lord. Parents, teach your children to love the Lord with all their heart, mind, and soul. Teach them these ways. As you, if, if, you, if you adopt this view where I'm not going to correct those who are in error in my home or in my church, you're outside of God's will. That's a path toward destruction. The Lord disciplines those he loves. Discipline is an act of love, but he disciplines us to refine us, to purify us, to make us more like 
So the goal, church, is restoration. It is never meant to be punitive. The goal is always restoration, the purity of the church, the glory of God. I want to challenge us to love one another so much that we deal with the sin in one another's life. And then corporately, we deal with the sin that is public, blatant, and unrepentant. And let's deal with it in a manner that is prescribed by Scripture. Says something about how this feels unloving. Clearly, discipline is an act of love. Is it harsh? Maybe. Friends, what we must understand is the severity and how heinous sin is before a holy God. Beloved, God is holy, holy, holy. It's a superlative. It means he's the holiest of holies. He's unmatched, unrivaled. And when we really get a view of God's holiness, we realize that what sin and sinners deserve is death. That's the penalty. That is the punishment for sin before a holy God. So is it harsh? Maybe. But that's what's necessary to keep a person from being eternally damned the rest of their lives. Yet, as holy as God is, and as great of sinners as we are, God still is a God of mercy and a God of grace. He comes running after us. He pursues those who are rebelling against him. So much so that he says, the death that you deserve, I'm going to take it up on myself, put it on my son, Jesus Christ himself, so that you can be in right relationship with me. Well, we must see that God running after us and pursuing us, it is gracious, it is merciful, and sometimes the means by which he shows us grace and mercy is through discipline. The process, the act is an act of grace. It is an act of mercy. Because what God could do, he could just strike us all down right now and say, you sinner, go to hell. But he doesn't. He says, I'm coming after you. I'm going to come. And, I, and when you come back, my arms is going to be wide open saying, come home. I still love you. I know the very worst about you, but yet I'm still going to welcome you back into my open arms. That's what we should be communicating and pursuing as we pursue this process of church discipline, saying, hey, God is still there. He welcomes you back, but you're going to have to come back under his terms. And that's repentance. That's loyalty and fidelity towards him. What a mighty God we serve. That we can come to him just as we are. But he loves us so much that he's unwilling to leave us as we are. He wants us to be conformed to the very image of his son. Church, worship team, come back. Help us to sing. Give us some joy. As they come, I'm going to pray for us. Our Lord Jesus Christ,
This word has not been easy to prepare, to preach, but it is necessary for our sanctification, for the holiness of your people. So God, thank you first of all for loving us so much that you have put processes together in scripture to bring us back to you, to be in right relationship with you. God, I pray for this body called the Bridge Church. God, what a loving community this is. I've heard so many stories, even this week, of how we have loved one another. Help us, God, to love one another so well that we are not content with leaving one another in our sin. Give us courage. Give us boldness. Help us, God, to be faithful to what you have called us to do in your word. And if there be some man, woman, boy, or girl in this room, Father, who is living like this so-called brother in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I pray that you would endow them, give them a spirit of repentance. Break their hearts for what breaks yours. God, for that individual who may be in the situation like this brother, help them, God, to hate their sin, be disgusted by their actions. Not that it leads to self-hate, but it leads to a conviction that says, I must get right with God. So God, do what only you can do. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.